Well, good morning. Can you hear me? Is there anybody out there? I've had a wonderful morning this morning. I really have. I, one of the, the joys in, in being involved with Canterbury Gardens is standing at the door and watching people come in to church. And uh, along with that, one of the, the, the wonderful things is to watch his, uh, people's reaction. I've had more comments this morning about my dress <laughs> than I care to remember. Some say, oh, nice to see you in a suit. Well, it's not a suit. They're black trousers and that's a blue shirt, right? So you're a colorblind. Some have said, it's nice to see you sharply dressed. I have a secret, though. Something that you do not know. I've got odd socks on. So does that change your opinion about my dress? That I've got odd socks on? Or that actually I'm wearing cowboy boots? You don't wear cowboy boots for suits. That's a no-no. You see, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we build all these traditions in our, in our minds about what is right and what is wrong. I grew up and this was the standard attire plus tie for a preacher. You would be in a jacket and a, a shirt and a tie and that was considered the right thing to wear. That's fine in itself. A tradition is a, it can be a good thing, but it also can be a very damaging thing. Earlier on this year, I had the, the wonderful privilege of going to a, a live stage show. I, I really enjoy those events. Uh, Julie had surprised me, and I got back from traveling overseas, and in January we went to see the, the stage show, Fiddler on the Roof. I knew very little about that particular show, very little about the story. But as I watched the show, it just captivated me. You see, the story is set in, in 1905 in a small Russian town. And this Russian town is predominantly populated by Jews. And the story is about these hard-working Jewish families just prior to the Russian Revolution. Because what happened in the Russian Revolution, Jews were persecuted. They lost their homes, they lost their possessions, they lost many things. But outside that, what really captivated my attention was the very first scene on this show. As the lead character, Tevar rolls his wheelbarrow onto the stage and addresses the audience with the now famous song called Tradition. I would sing this for you, but I will not sing it for you, if that makes sense. Because this song highlights the cultural norms of the day, showing that this uh, peasant dairyman and his friends acknowledged the age-old laws of tradition that govern their lives. It's quite a humorous song because he says, look, we have this tradition, we put hats on our head, we have prayer shawls around our waists. And he says, I'll tell you why we have this tradition. And his answer is, I don't know. See, this tradition in this play was something that ordered their lives and gave stability to their community. And the famous line is, 
as the, the character ends the song, he says, if we did not have these traditions, we would be as shaky as a fiddler on a roof trying to play a song on a steepled roof. It's there's a story went along uh, it further just captivated my imagination because the story was centered around the, the tradition of what used to happen for the father, known as the papa, in relation to his girls. He had four daughters, you see. And the tradition was that the dad would always find the husband for the daughter. Maybe it's a tradition we should go back to. I don't know. But these daughters, one by one, challenged the tradition in a rather humorous way. And as I thought about that, I thought that sometimes within church life, sometimes in the comings and goings of our community life, our traditions can displace scriptural truth. Our traditions can be seen as the thing that is spiritual as opposed to our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as I said before, there's nothing really wrong with some traditions. Some are very helpful. If you're an avid sports fan right at the moment, you will, you will understand the tradition of Wimbledon. You'll understand that you can go there and eat strawberries and cream, sup champagne, that all the players will be dressed in white, and that it will rain during the English summer. You will understand that because that's the tradition of the place. And the event runs very successfully based on those traditions. And every player, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because you look at the players across the tennis world, they are strongly individualistic. And yet they all get conformed for these two weeks of the year to wearing white clothes and semi-behaving themselves. But I want to come back once again that some traditions within church life can become dangerous. They can be created by man and superimpose the acceptable behaviour in a legalistic type way. And you know, folks, these things aren't new. They are not new. And as we look at Acts 15 today, we will wrestle with the very first time that tradition becomes an issue for the early church. You see, we reach a point in Acts, we're at Acts 15, and if you've got your Bibles, please turn there. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, not because that's a tradition, it's just because it's my preferred version. And you're free to read from whatever version you like. That's okay, just like I'm free to preach in a suit. You see, we reach Acts 15. And the church has been going for some 15 to 19 years. 
I think we lose sight of that when we start reading through Acts. It's quite a fast-moving narrative. But the church was born 15 to 19 years earlier when we reached this particular pinnacle in the, in the narrative. Lots of things have been going on. The Spirit has been poured out in an amazing way as promised by God from times past. The gospel has been preached and been understood and people have come to faith in Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. But we see for the first time a theological division. We see for the first time people coming into the church environment and saying, no, this is what this should be like. So if you could turn to Acts 15 and read with me as we get the context of what's going on. I'll read the first five verses. But some men came down from Judah and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, Is it necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses? See, some men had traveled from Jerusalem, or from Judea, sorry, down, or up, actually north, to Antioch. And they started imposing a belief system upon these believers in Antioch. And the the question was, you must be circumcised to be saved. That was the question. You must have an external rite of circumcision to be saved. You Gentiles, you must be circumcised. Otherwise your salvation is of no value. Now, Paul and Barnabas reacted to this. As you can see by verse 2, they had a, a large argument with them. We're not given the details of the argument, but I, I'd imagine it would be a fairly testy sort of thing. Because they were clearly proclaiming to those in that area that it's by the grace of God you are saved. There are no works. There's no superficial standard that goes across your salvation. It's by grace through faith. It is a gift. We'll read further of that as we go down to their account. (coughs) So they were charged to go up to Jerusalem and said, okay, go to the apostles, go to the elders, go to the church in Jerusalem, get a ruling on this. Go and find out if, if this is correct. Should they be circumcised? 
Is that a part of salvation? That's interesting, isn't it? As they travel up to Jerusalem, they report. They report to others about the wonderful thing that's happening. They report about the conversion of Gentiles and the, the people that hear are filled with great joy. Doesn't it thrill your heart when you hear about someone who has made a step of faith to follow Christ? Doesn't that fill your heart with joy? Well, Paul and Barnabas did this. They said, even though there's disputes going on, even though there is an issue about some coming down and trying to persuade others that circumcision is key, <coughs> it's not. People are being saved. It's great joy in what the Lord is doing. See, when they come to Jerusalem, they're welcomed well by the apostles and the elders because the apostles and the elders trusted what Paul and Barnabas were doing in Antioch. They'd heard great reports. They had seen the wonderful blessings of the ministry. But then we have this group raise themselves up again. Note that they are believers. Note that in verse 5. But some believers, people who had faith in Christ, they understood who the Messiah was. These believers who also had a historical link to the Pharisees rose up and said, is it necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here's the two questions that have been discussed here. Firstly, does circumcision save? And secondly, what obligation is there to keeping the law of Moses? This is based on tradition. Based on thousand years of tradition of keeping the law. So rightfully on their hearts, they, they think that this is a good thing to try and sort out. Please note the language in verse 5 there, because it says the group uses this language of necessity. Is it necessary? That's what it starts with. When you lose, use the language of necessity, you're implying that this was God's will. You get that? They grab this, this issue. They are before the apostles and before the elders. They're in a council of some sort. It seems like a council. And they're saying, is it necessary? It's implying that this is God's will. It is necessary. So that's their, their view. They, their demand is that the Gentile Christians become proselytes to Judaism. Both groups, those in Antioch and those in Jerusalem, wanted to impose this upon the Gentiles. <coughs> the issue isn't whether the Gentiles should be included in the community, but what are the specific requirements of being maintained in the community, of having fellowship in the community. They were imposing a tradition across the Gentiles. 
It makes me and causes me to ask some questions in my own heart as I think through that. What barriers do you and I place on your view of what a Christian is? What do you understand is the call of faith in a person's life and how does a Christian become a Christian? And even more cutting here is what legalism do I hold in my heart? What standards do I impose upon others that I turn into absolute truth? We all do it. We don't deny it. We all do it. We all place standards upon others to say, okay, if you adhere to that standard, therefore you must be spiritual. And this is at the heart of the issue here. So I'd ask you, I'd ask you today to think in your heart about the things that you impose on others within the family of God that, that uh, could be determined as legalistic. It could be as simple as church attendance. It could be as simple as what you wear. It could be as simple as the places you attend. It could be as simple as the amount of prayer meetings you attend the amount of events what in your heart do you impose across others to say if you keep those rules I know you're doing well oh, tea is it is it tea oh good thank you Have a cup of tea so you know these, these are important things to think through very important things to think through. You know, I've been involved in, in places and places of worship where the most bizarre things go on in relation to what is deemed to be acceptable. For instance, whether you have real wine on communion, whether you have a common cup, or whether you have thimbles, or whether you have a, a piece of bread that you break, or, or whether you have pieces of bread. Churches split over that stupid stuff. And that's what it is. It becomes a preference, and people say, well, I can't live in that place for so long because this is my preference. I believe this is biblically true, therefore... You see, traditions have the habit of becoming absolute truth. That's what happens. Traditions have that habit of becoming absolute truth and they get removed from Scripture. And this is the heart of what's going on here in this council. So the application there again is what traditions do you have in your own heart that you superimpose upon others? Because that's the issue. As soon as you start imposing that view on others, 
It's not based on God's word, and it's not encouraging you to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh and those sorts of things, because there are things here we can encourage one another with. But if you've come to a view that this particular tradition I will not let go of, I will not think in ways that this could be damaging to others, then that tradition becomes incredibly counterproductive. So have a think about that. Go home this week. Write down your traditions. Write down the things you hold dearly and in your own heart decide, is that a tradition or is that an absolute truth from God? And ask the Lord to do a work on your own heart. So let's read what happens. So they're there to consider this particular issue. Uh, Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart will witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul And they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from old therefore my judgment is this that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood and from ancient generations Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what we have here is we have a reply to the challenge. The question is before the council, you know, should Gentile believers be circumcised? Should they keep the law of Moses? And we have two testimonies. We firstly have the testimony of Peter. Peter recounts his experience. If you went back to Acts chapter 10 and you could read Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 48, and you'll see the summary of Peter before Cornelius. You'll see the summary of how God changed Peter's view and realized that the gospel needed to go to the Gentiles. 
It's very telling. Acts 10.34 says this. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Isn't that a wonderful thing that God shows no partiality? Isn't that a wonderful thing that as we all are gathered here, that no one has a right to God more than anybody else? Isn't it a wonderful thing that God's grace and his amazing grace has saved us no matter what our background is? That should thrill your hearts and souls as it does me. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's Peter's testimony. And that's what he tells us here in Acts 15. He says there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. They both have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been poured out upon them. It's interesting, isn't it? He then gives a warning. He says, this is the state of affairs. The Lord has shown me this through vision and through application with Cornelius, but now the Lord has shown me that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. But then he issues a warning. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, but neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He's brutally honest. He says, this yoke is the law. How can you replace that upon them? The law doesn't bring righteousness. Faith in Christ brings righteousness. Faith in Christ gives you a right standing before God. Not keeping, not doing, not having a whole list of things that you do to try and earn merit with God. He says, don't put this yoke. You know what a yoke is? It's a, it's a wooden circumference thing that goes on the back of a mule or an ox. Very heavy. And the yoke is there so you can actually steer that dumb animal around the paddock to be fed. So this is, and it's a burden to the animal. Anyone here ever seen a, an ox or a, a, a cattle beast with a yoke on it? Yeah, it's not a very common thing to see these days, but in ancient Israel, it was everywhere because they wanted to control and manage this animal. He says, don't put that burden, don't put that weight, don't put that yoke upon these Gentiles. They don't need circumcision. They don't need to keep all the dietary requirements of the law. They don't need to keep all the sacrificial requirements of the law. Christ has come to free them from that. And his declaration says, don't test God. You see, what's happening here, even though it's the action of the Pharisees or the believing Pharisees, it's actually an action against God. It is God's way that has been challenged here. God's wonderful message of salvation has been challenged. That's what happens when you place a tradition over salvation. You're challenging God. 
and his way. You know, the yoke of doing every aspect of the law should not be placed on the Gentiles at all, since this burden can never be met. Not even the Jews could meet this obligation. You see, the issue here with these believing Pharisees is they did not understand the new realm of God's grace and his indwelling spirit. It was something that needed to be taught to them that God had provided the spirit to walk a life in the spirit. That was God's avenue of blessing. See, that didn't happen in the Old Testament. The spirit didn't come up upon everybody or dwell within everybody it came upon people for specific things but now that changes when you put your faith in Christ the spirit dwells within us enables us to start saying no to the fleshly desires enables us to walk in a in a way that honors the Lord the spirit is written the law is written in our hearts that's what Peter's getting at here there is no place for the law in terms of salvation. That's the bottom line here. There is no place for the law in terms of salvation. Where would you go to reinforce that? What verses in Scripture would you go? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a pure act of God's grace through Christ Jesus. Verse 11 is a wonderful verse. Circle it. (laughs) But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That is Peter's testimony. Jews and Gentiles alike, the only thing that saves us is the grace of Christ. A free gift. to a rotten, lousy sinner. And it's interesting, this is the last time we hear from Peter in the book of Acts. What a way to go out. Not that he dies in the next verse, but what I mean, this is the last recorded statement of Peter. We believe we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. And then you go read his letters in First and Second Peter, and they're dripping with understanding around this particular aspect. It is God's grace that saves. What about you? How are you saved? How do you believe you're saved? Do you believe you're saved by keeping a whole lot of rules? a whole lot of appointments, a whole lot of events by turning up to church, etc. Or do you believe you're saved by God's grace as an unmerited free gift? I challenge you to think through that. I pray the Spirit of God will work in your heart and open afresh the fact that your salvation is an act of God's grace. We then hear from Paul and Barnabas. They give a very brief account which testifies in the same way as Peter. And they said, look, we we have 
been through a missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14 talks about that. We've seen many signs and wonders. We've seen many Gentiles come to faith. We've seen the work of the Lord blossom. Luke summarizes that very quickly in one verse. I'd encourage you to grab this verse and look back at the, some of the instances in chapter 13 and 14 where it highlights God's wonderful grace. You know, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them urged them to continue in the grace of God. And we have Gentiles being saved. And then we have the wonderful report back to the church at Antioch end of chapter 14 and when they arrived and gathered the church together they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and that door of faith was opened through grace and then James chimes in so you have Paul Peter's account you have Paul's account and then you have James's account and James provides support for the conclusion that the Gentiles are saved by grace. And he does this by using some Old Testament text. He goes to Amos chapter 9 and Isaiah 45. And he points, he says, and they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, it's interesting, uh, James uses uh, Peter's Aramaic name here. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take for them a people for his name. And that's the key clause because that's what he uses scripture to determine. Yes, this has happened. The Gentiles are being called. And this has been prophesied by the prophets, plural. From long ago, he just happens to tune in on, on Amos chapter 9. If you know a little bit about Amos, you will know that um, Amos was prophesying in around... Let me just get the details for you. Hosea, Joel, Amos. He was prophesying around 792 to 753 BC. So both the northern and southern kingdom of Israel were still intact. But his prime prophecy and warning to the people is seen in chapter 5 of Amos where he says, I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That is the key issue for, for Amos as he prophesies to the nation their worship was a farce. Their worship was hypocrisy. God said he despised their feasts. He despised their solemn assemblies. He despised their burnt offerings. Why? Because their heart was far from him. But God in his grace in Amos provides restoration. That's what Amos 9 is about. Amos 9 is about the restoration. And if you read Amos 9, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the days of old. 
And they may possess the remnant of Eden and the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. But behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. This is where James quotes. That's the end of Amos 9. He particularly quotes 11 and 12 from that. There for the purpose of saying all the prophets testify that the Gentiles we brought to salvation. One of the foundational elements of the Abrahamic covenant is that, that all nations will be blessed through you, which is through Christ Jesus. And we see here James using this scripture to reinforce the fact of, of what Simon and Peter, so Peter and Paul and Barnabas have said about the Gentiles coming in. There's a lot more I'd like to say about this, but because of time I will not. Because whenever you study the Old Testament news and the New, there are some things that need to be considered. Maybe that will be for another time. Finally, in this letter, in this chapter, they send a letter. They send a letter, and I'll briefly just highlight who goes with it. You've got Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, and they also send two others, Judas and Silas. And they give a decree. And the decree is pretty simple. It's sent with commissioned messengers, and the decree is those who came to you proclaiming this whole thing that you can be saved by being circumcised, they weren't sent from us. So they distanced themselves from the trouble. And then it said, We have unity in this instruction. We have one accord. We're in one accord. We're, we, if you read that in verse 25, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And the testimony of these men they send are wonderful. Men have raised their lives, risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus. So not only Paul and Barnabas went, but Judas and Silas went with them to add testimony, to add weight to what has been said. And then 28 is the key. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And so it's interesting. He gives actually four requirements, which had been noted earlier in verse 19 and 20. And so you ask, well, what are they actually doing here? Are they actually imposing law across the Gentiles for salvation? And I'd say no, for these reasons. It's not new in the New Testament to have these type of instructions to Christians. 
The issue is not salvation. Salvation has been dealt with. Salvation is only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, they're saying, watch your behavior. Watch your behavior. First Thessalonians talks about the same sorts of things here. Paul at length talks about these sorts of things in Corinthians. So I think in summary, there's two things that are go on here with this instruction. It's just saved by grace, but watch your behavior. It's a warning. Stay away from the things that will cause you to stumble. Stay away from pagan worship. Stay away from adultery. Stay away from sexual immorality. You know, all these prohibitive activities seem to have occurred together. So I think the issue here in the instruction is stay away from that temple. Stay away from that pagan temple because these are the things that you will see there. And it will cause you to stumble. And not only that, it will cause your fellow Jewish brothers to stumble. See, I think it was a warning here, this decree is a warning to abstain from the acts that would offend, firstly, your Jewish brothers. But there's a hugely deeper significance here. I think here that it's implied to challenge and to break completely with the pagan associations that they were having. And to do all things, whether eating or drinking, to the glory of God. John Stott gives a very helpful quote here. By saying this. The Jerusalem Council secured a double victory. A victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace the victory of truth that you're only saved by grace alone and the victory of love in preserving the fellowship by sensitive concessions to one another two things confirms the truth you're saved by grace The things charged to abstain from confirm the thing that because of your love for one another you abstain from these things so your fellowship won't be broken. You abstain from these things they don't cause you to be saved but in your own heart and your love for the Lord you'll learn to get on. You'll have concessions and you'll live a holy life. Attempt to live a holy life through the Spirit of God that dwells within you. So the challenge here and the application here is simple. How do you view your salvation? Is it solely based on the grace of God? Solely based on His gift for you? And secondly, in light of your salvation and your love to one another, how do you behave as a Christian community? 
in different aspects of your life? Are we men and women who are concerned for one another in the fact that we'll uphold the truth of a godly life above having one foot in the world? Above meeting in places that don't align to your belief. So these are quite heavy things when you think about what James does here. He says, yes, you're saved by grace, but you have an opportunity to serve others in love by abstaining from these things. It's not in a legalistic sense. It's in a sense that has a deep love for Jesus first as you serve one another. I invite the music team to come up and we'll sing our final song. Let's consider these things together.